Hey y'all, I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 286. Well, right out the gate, we have to talk about Danny Masterson. Boy, bye. For 30 years to life. I mean, it's what happens when you rape somebody and then try to use your fake religion, aka Scientology, to cover it up. And multiple women. Yeah. Oh, but I did see, because, okay, let's just be honest. I know him as Hyde, okay? And so I couldn't think of his last name, and I I Googled, and Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher, or Kutcher, however you say it, it came out that they wrote letters to the court in support of Danny. What? Yeah. Meanwhile, Ashton Kutcher was, like, literally a part of him. Like, he, he like, knows someone that was murdered. Remember that? He yeah. was, like, supposed to go, like, pick this girl up on their first date or something, and she was murdered. Yeah, and he's something with, like, trafficking and stuff, too, right? Yeah. Like, like well, against I don't know about it, that. I Yeah. Think. Well, hopefully he's against <laughs> it. <laughs> hopefully everybody is. Um, but, yeah, that really surprises me. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Do I know all the evidence that was against him? No. But uh, he was found guilty, so, I mean, a jury of his peers think he's guilty. So, if yeah. you did that, you really raped two women who they think is, like, at least two women. Sorry. Yeah. You deserve it. Just when this comes out, I always am like, why can't you be a good human? You know, because we do, like, we watch these people and we think we know them because we've watched all the series that they're in and all the things. And then it's like, you're a piece of shit. Well, speaking of that, have you seen all the stuff come out about Jimmy Fallon? Well, no, you told me a little bit. Yeah. So, allegedly, he's like the new Ellen and is... This is all allegedly. And apparently he's like already, can we say apparently again? But he's already apologized and been like done his, started a little apology tour. But um, yeah, they say that he's mean to the staffers and they like go hide in the rooms and cry. And I mean, apparently it's bad. Yeah, that sucks. Because work culture really means a lot. Mm-hmm. You know what else means a lot? Patreoners! Okay, okay. Thank you so much, Candace J from Virginia. Aaron C. from South Carolina. Don S. from Missouri. Ursula J. from Kentucky. And Caitlin from Camping is Canceled podcast. Ooh, thank you so much. If you want an episode shout out and all the extra good good that all of these people are getting on Patreon, you got to go over there. Patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Peruse it out. See what works for you. So at work the other day, one of my coworkers was like, so I'm listening to like older episodes. And she said, <laughs> apparently in 2018, we had this whole conversation where I guess I had just learned that pigeons and doves are the same animal, just different coloring, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I guess we had this whole conversation and it bled into a whole conversation at work where everybody was like, no, it's not. No, it's not. No, you know, they were like all into it. Yeah. But there was this huge discussion about whether I was right or not. And some people were like, there's no way. And then others were like, no, she's right. And so we, of course, Googled it. It was like a whole thing all over again. Oh, my gosh. But she was like, it's so funny listening to the older episodes. Because I was like, yeah, 2018, I wasn't even with Colby yet. Shit. And um, she's like, I know. Like, your life was so different. <laughs> Mine, still the same. Well, something is different about my life. Uh, when this comes out, I will be starting my new job the next day. Woohoo! So for everyone who gave me the good vibes on Facebook and all of that, thank you so much. I did get the job. And yeah, your girl's got a full-time job. And that means better insurance. Tell me you're old and have health problems without telling me you're old and have health problems. Yeah. Because we both do. 
And we both are. <laughs> Me and Carrie went and had dinner yesterday, and both of our heads were hurting because of the weather. My freaking hands were killing me yesterday. <laughs> I was like, it's got to be going to, it's got to rain. I mean, we'd both be burned at the stake for witchcraft. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, but I was right, though. It fucking poured last night. Yeah. Okay, so something else. Talking about older episodes, this was only like two weeks ago or so, but I kind of went on a tirade. Is that how you say it? About the ugliest house in America, that show, and how they picked one with like just had cherubs everywhere. And it was like, you can just remove those. Okay, so they had a different season and it was like the summer road trip. And this time they actually did pick an ugly house that was like weird, you know? So it was like, okay, show me how you're going to make this better. I just want to say that it was worth it. I apologize for saying anything (laughs) bad about the other one. But also, Retta is the lady who host it and she was on good women bad women you know the bad women's club no it wasn't a club but like (laughs) (laughs) which straight straight to oxygen to the bad women's club that comes on after snapped that's the only reason why i know (laughs) no this was i can't remember what it's called but like they ended up robbing a bank and stuff and then like money laundering but you wouldn't think they were bad moms I don't fucking know. Anyway, continue. Yeah, she's on that show. Like, you would know who she is, but she is so funny. And then the designers, Allison from, like, Windy City Renovation. But those two crack me up because they like to pull pranks on each other and stuff. But then production, this time at the finale, they do those poppers. And they got them so many times. And they reminded me so much of you because they would just be like, what the fuck? Stop yeah. it. Like, because, you know, they would just do it randomly. And I, like, had to go pee right after that because it was so fucking funny. Because it just, their reactions reminded me so much of you. Yeah. I love being scared. I mean, it, like, it pisses me off for, like, an instant. And then I remember how much I love it and it makes me giggle. <laughs> because I'm ultimately a Sour Patch Kid. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, I was on Instagram earlier today. And I was on, uh, I don't know if you say it, puberty, puberty. I say puberty in my head every time I read it. Anyway, they had a post that said that... In Spain, you can get $1,500 to sleep. Yes. So, there's this thing called siesta fiesta, which sounds right up my alley. I'm Uh like, does it have snacks and a bed? I'm there. So, it's like in this mall, and your goal is to sleep as close to 20 minutes as you can. Because it's supposed to bring awareness to like how important it is to get like a 20-minute nap during the day. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I could take a four-hour nap during the day. So, you are literally laying in this busy mall, and you get... These people just, like, watching you, scoring you, sleeping. So you get points for, like, weird positions you sleep, snoring really loud. Donna's like, I would win that. I'm like, don't give me my CPAP and I'll win that. Oh, my gosh. You get points for, like, your pajamas. Did I say that yet? Uh Uh-uh. Pajamas, weird positions you sleep in, if you snore, you know, all this stuff. And, like, the goal is to, like, sleep 20 minutes. And I was like, I could do that. That sounds terrible to me. Now, I don't know if I could actually do the 20 minutes, but fall asleep in a a mall like that absolutely could. I don't know if you could. You get me tired enough, I can fall asleep in January. Well, yeah, but... You know what my trick is? I read this somewhere, aka probably saw it on TikTok, but I lay there and I go, don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep, and I get like four of them in and I'm out. No, that does not work for me. You told me that before and I'm literally like, well, I'm still awake. Cool. Also, you couldn't do it because they wouldn't have enough pillows for you to do your whole fort around you. I don't know. Look at this. I stand corrected. Maybe they would. 
I mean, they look like they're in like little couches slash bed. No, I think I'd be good. Again, you hit me up at like 2.30, 3 o'clock. I know I could go to sleep. <laughs> I finally got my Halloween decorations up. Oh, yeah. Me too. Me too. You ha- I think we talked about this last time, did we? I think it was on Patreon. Oh. So y'all know how my dog Jax loves to eat ornaments and pee on trees, like Christmas trees and stuff? Well, I have a black pre-lit tree that is my Halloween tree. Y'all, we put this up. I think I, we got him up Monday, Labor Day. Tuesday would have, was his first day by himself with the tree. He took an ornament off and like it looks like he just kind of held it in his mouth like there weren't because they're like wooden cutouts of uh, Hocus Pocus and then like the bad guys from horror movies like yeah like, kind of cartoonish. Yeah they're not his normal circular round balls. Glass. Yeah. They're not normally gl- my Christmas ones are fake glass but kind of glass. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like okay shards of things inside of him. So it looks like he like held Mary Sanderson in his mouth and was like probably shouldn't do this and then he peed on the tree maybe he peed first and then had the ornament in his mouth and And he was like tasted his own pee i hope so (laughs) taste your own fucking medicine oh i'm so pissed but knock on wood he hasn't done it since maybe awesome got it out of his system maybe he really did test his own pee (laughs) maybe we'll see on christmas Oh, Lord. The Christmas trees, though. That motherfucker loves those. And he always chews my favorite ones. I'm like, God damn it. That was my favorite fucking reindeer. Did you see how it glistened in the light? (laughs) Merry fucking Christmas. (laughs) All right. Before we get into Donna's story, this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. And y'all know that I've actually started therapy through BetterHelp, and it has been so great. My sister and I were talking about it the other day, and she was like, have you noticed a difference in your day-to-day life? And I was like, I really have. Like, I really have noticed that I feel lighter and that I'm not as angry about stuff that doesn't fucking matter. Like, if somebody gets on my nerves or whatever, like, I'm not as... People just aren't getting on my nerves as much. Yeah. I mean, Donna is, but, like, people aren't. (laughs) So, if you're like Carrie and you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, so you can do it whenever suits your schedule. And like I always say, you don't even have to have a bra on if you don't want it. There's an app, of course, and it's super user-friendly. Whenever you join, you fill out a brief questionnaire, and that helps you get matched with a licensed therapist. And from there, you know, they contact you, send you, like, intake questions, and then set up a time to do, you know, all the things. And I have loved my therapist. Like, they did such a great job setting me up with someone that matched from my questionnaire. But if that isn't the case for you, BetterHelp has it set up to where you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge, no questions asked. If you're just not feeling it and it's just not working out between the two of you, you switch. And that, to me, was such a peace of mind because it's so hard finding a therapist, booking it with their office, you know, setting it up with your work schedule, all the things, and then you don't mesh well. Oh, yeah. And here's how you know we're codependent. Carrie was like, I think you would love my therapist. You should try her. (laughs) I mean, they would get along. And then really, it would be like a two for one for me because Donna would talk about, you know, probably some stuff with me and she'd get answers for me (laughs) because that's how Donna rolls. (laughs) 
Donna's on a dating site. I'm like, yeah, my best friend, Carrie, uh, blah, 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 like when I was single. Because <laughs> y'all know I'm a talker, but Carrie's not a talker, and therapy has really helped her. And so if you're not a talker and you're like, I don't want to do it, just know that was Carrie, and she is thriving in therapy. Well, and BetterHelp offers so many different avenues for you to do the therapy. If you don't want to do video calls, you can chat with your therapist. You can do phone calls. It doesn't have to be video calls. But it's super easy to set up sessions with your therapist. For example, as soon as I get off with my therapist, it's like, when do you want to schedule your next one? They offer group therapy if you want to do that. Like, there's so many things. And then if my therapist has something that they want me to work on, she can share articles with me. She can share a worksheet with me through the chat feature. So it's a super user-friendly system and I've really enjoyed using it. So if you want to get in on this and try therapy and just see if it helps you as much as it's helping me, you got to go to betterhelp.com APC and you're going to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash APC to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash APC for 10% off your first month. Y'all, Care Of is back. Care Of is a subscription service that ships high quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. And you know, if Donna can do something without putting on a bra, she is in for it. And I can wear my slippers and just open my door. Okay, you would wear your slippers if you had to go to the store. But with Care Of, you don't have to do that. The seasons are changing. We're going into fall. And you may want to focus on some new habits. And maybe you're already using Care Of. All you have to do with Care Of is take a short quiz that can be retaken at any time. And that's going to give you recommendations just to help you build a healthier lifestyle. So even if your needs change with the seasons, all you have to do is retake the quiz and you're going to get doctor-backed recommendations for any type of vitamins or supplements that you may need. The biggest thing I love about Care Of is the convenience. Again, I don't have to go to the store, anywhere like that. I can take an online quiz while I'm watching TV and then get personalized vitamins and supplements sent to my house and they're going to be in to-go packs. Right, because Care Of is not only individualized to you, but, you know, like Donna said, those individualized packets that they send to you, perfect for on the go. And I love it because the packages have my name on it, and it's easy because I like to take my vitamins at night, so it's easy for me just to pop that pack, take those vitamins at night. Also, when you get your subscription, it's going to have a pamphlet that tells you about each vitamin, each supplement, and what it's going to do for you. So even if you're like, Oh, crap. It, you know, I can't remember what that was. You have it right there in paper. And with the app, it helps you build holistic routines, track your progress with new updated features, and you can earn rewards for sticking with your healthy habits. So to get 50% off your first care of order, head on over to takecareof.com and enter code creep50 for 50% off your first order. That's take care of dot com and enter code creep five zero for fifty percent off your first care of package. That's T A K E C A R E O F dot com and enter code creep five zero for fifty percent off your first care of order. Okay, so we have talked about our girl Erica C because she did our makeup for the meetup in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And I mean she's just amazing. 
But then we saw her again in Austin, and she brought her sister, Kelsey, who I instantly fell in love with, too. Well, Kelsey was like, have you heard about the horny ghost? And I was like, say what? And so then she told me about a ghost who's known to be freaky deaky like myself. And I was like, okay, say less, but actually, you know, say more because I need to do this story. I need the deets. I was going to say, Donna's like, and can I get his digits? Well, it's a girl. Oh, well, either way, she's like, can I get them digits? <laughs> You're not wrong. So we're first going to talk about the history of the Skirvin Hotel in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And again, that's where the horny ghost resides, a.k.a. me. Now, also, there is a content warning because there is infant death and suicide that will be mentioned. We're going to start with William Skirvin, who was a successful oil tycoon. And you know, when I say that, I picture something. Do you know what I picture? Monopoly. No, Texas Ted from Texas Tea Slot Machines. Oh. Of course. I love him. Look, we haven't been to the casino in a long time. He's a classic. Anyway, William is originally from Michigan, but then in 1889, he left to Oklahoma because that was the land rush of 1889. And the people who did this were called 89ers, you know, I mean. Clever. Yeah. So basically, this is going to be Donna's version of a history lesson. Isn't that what every week is? Well, yeah. But, you know, like, remember when I told you about Rumpelstiltskin and, like, the most odd way ever. I think I used Beyonce, say my name, say my name. Anyway, it's going to be like that. Basically, the land previously belonged to Native American tribes. And Abraham Lincoln was like, um, we're going to reassign this to open land. And it was going to be first come, first serve. So the settlements would happen and like, you know, populations and all that. So literally, it was like Black Friday at Walmart or wherever, I don't know. But an asinine amount of people lined up and they were ready for high noon because that's when they could rush the land or whatever. But anyway, there's a lot more about that, obviously, because it's taking land that they're like, it wasn't settled for people to buy. Meanwhile, yes, it was. Yeah. But anyway, just know William was a part of the 89ers, and that's how he acquired some real estate. But he did travel some more, and he found himself in Texas, and that's when, you know, he struck it rich and all the things in the oil business. Now, scooting ahead a few years, he returned to Oklahoma, and he decided he wanted to have the finest establishment in the Southwest. So in 1910, he started construction on the Skirvin Hotel, you know, his namesake. It was finished within the year, and it was very she-she. Like, it had two towers that had 10 stories each, and it was one of the first buildings in Oklahoma City to have AC, which is what they called, like, iced air at that point. And he had extravagant taste, you know, so he had, like, ballrooms and all of these, like, fancy places that they could meet up, and, you know, they would dazzle even the queen herself. And he imported the finest decorations, like Austrian chandeliers that cost more than $100,000 each. Holy shit. I'm like, and you did multiple? But just know, if he knew about the bamboo toilet paper, it would have been in his hotel, because that's how luxurious it is. So in 1926, the hotel expanded and added a third tower, and that was 13 stories. And then four years later, I think he was finally like, well, shit. We need to make all the towers even. It'll look better. 
So they were all expanded to 14 stories. But let's get back to old Willie. Before he finished the hotel, he had lost his wife, Harriet. She was sick and she, you know, died from her illness. And William never got remarried. After he built the hotel, he and his kids lived in the hotel. And so Big Willie was always around the hotel. And even though you might be like, oh, he didn't remarry because he loved his wife so much. I think he didn't remarry because he didn't want another relationship. Because he was a womanizer. Like, he became womanizer, womanizer, whatever the Britney Spears song is. Um, But he was rumored to have been involved with many of the hotel staff. And also, some, a little aside, he's thought to have an affair with his administrative assistant. And she ended up being his alibi for the death of his partner in the hotel, who was like the hotel manager, Frederick Shrubel. So at first, Fred was found dead in a hotel room, and they believed he died by suicide. And he was shot. But then they started looking around, and what they had thought he might be financially behind for the hotel and you know like he was just so overwhelmed and he died by suicide but then people were like no it was murder because they didn't find any gunpowder on Frederick's hands or anything and so people started eyeing everyone but like I said Skirvin had an alibi but everyone kind of just like turned their eyes to him and I feel like just because of how quick that went, it kind of shows you what his reputation was. Like, he was the one who was going to make sure you had fun at his establishment, legally or illegally. Because, like, the hotel was a popular speakeasy during Prohibition. And it was during that time that a rumor started to spread that William was said to have an affair with one of the maids, whose name was unknown, but staff now have started calling her Effie. But like we always say, someone in that situation, like your boss, especially the owner of the establishment, they have too much power for it to be completely consensual. Because even if you are interested in having relations with that person, there's that underlying power dynamic. Well, William and Effie were said to have had, you know, a secret relationship. Then Effie became pregnant. And that couldn't get out. So William ended up locking Effie in a hotel room (gasps) on the top floor. Then when she had the baby, she thought she would be able to leave the hotel room. But he wasn't going to let that happen. Like, we know this happened for sure. No. Oh, okay. I was going to say, or, okay. No. Okay. I wasn't sure if this was like rumors or this was, okay. okay. Yeah, rumors. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Um, But she was still not allowed to leave the room. And... People said that they could hear her pleading to open the door, someone help her, like let her leave. And at one point, Effie wrapped her baby in her arms and she jumped out the hotel window. But nobody opened the door for her. Well, back then the hotels had the windows, you know. No, that's what I'm saying though. Like all these people heard her begging for help and nobody helped her. Yeah, because again, the people who were up there on the top floor were kind of doing things that shouldn't have been done and they were all under William's lock and key because that is where like the nefarious side of life happened you know gambling sex work all the things society outwardly frowned upon 
Meanwhile, the hotel was hopping and bopping along mm. doing its thing. And it wouldn't have been able to do that if people weren't partaking in those activities. Right. Also, there was like a shootout on that floor too, the 10th floor. And there's a bullet hole that is supposed to be still by the elevators. Anyway, nothing seemed like it shook Big Willie because he went on with business as usual. And, you know, he was still the man everyone came to see for a good time. So even though these people thought he might have hired a hitman to kill his partner, they still were like, well, I get to have my fun here, so it's okay. So to Carrie's point, some people say Effie never existed, but others say, yes, she did. Her name might not be Effie, they just gave her this name, but it was a maid and there really wouldn't be any record of her because William had the money to make sure she wasn't going to be remembered in writing. So just to note, all the sources I saw made sure to say Effie was a woman of loose morals and attribute the horny ghost to being her. However, there were lots of sex workers that were in and out of the hotel and some other rumors have said that they had been killed there and their deaths covered up as well. Um, so, you know, we don't know if Effie is quote unquote the horny ghost or what, but I'm just saying they're going to say Effie is in all of these sources. But it made me mad because you don't have to have loose morals to be a sexual person or anything like that. That like one and two do not affect each other. Your morals have nothing to do with your sexual anything. Yes. Like your desires, your sexuality, your, I mean, whatever. Yeah. Made me mad. I was like, she did not have loose morals. Anyway, I took it personally. So in 1944, William was in a car accident and he ended up passing away two weeks later due to the severity of his injuries. His kids were grown by this time, but they did not keep the hotel for long and they sold it to a famous hotel person. I don't know how to say the word hotelier. I don't know. You know, like people yeah. who own hotels. <laughs> His name was Dan James, and he had it for 20 years. And then it was kind of like hot potato through lots of different owners. But in 1988, it closed for a while, like 15 years. And then it was reopened, undergoing like almost $50 million in renovations. Jesus. And now it's known as the Skirvin Hilton Hotel, and it's still very she-she. And it's where a lot of NBA players will stay when they're in town for a game, but more on that later. So even though it's a really nice hotel, there are still some spookiness that lingers in the halls. People have witnessed cleaning carts just rolling up and down the hall, but no one's there, which it reminded me of us all freaking out over the self-driving car in Austin. Mm -hmm. We were just like, whoa. Meanwhile, I'm just hung up on that. How much money did you say? $50 million. Do you know how many times over I could pay my student loans Oh off? my God, if you mention those student loans. Well, kind of like Carrie's student loans, there is some residual hauntings. <laughs> <laughs> like phantom footsteps, sounds of doors opening and closing. Crying at night, rocking yourself to sleep. Literally, <laughs> there has been a baby heard crying. Which they believe to be Effie's baby. Some closet doors will slam in the middle of the night and then others will creak open by themselves. People have heard pots and pans when they're in the kitchen being clanged together. But when they look around, no one's in the kitchen. And remember when I said the hotel was abandoned for like 15 years? During that time, 
there was one light bulb that would turn on over a chair where they say, you know, Big Willie would sit in the lobby and it was like on one of the chandeliers in the lobby, but they did not have electricity for 15 years and this light would still come on. Damn. Did it really though? Guests will also comment that their lights flicker at night a lot. And one guest said a message appeared on their bathroom mirror during their shower. And when they got out, it was all fogged up and they could clearly see two words written. Do you know what that was? Beware. I said two words. Horny ghost. Help me. Oh, clever. Susan Riley used to work at the Skirvin Hotel, and she said that the Venetian room, which is a ballroom on the top floor, had a lot of energy up there. She said that she had set up banquets, and she would do it for the night before, and when she would get up the next morning, go in there, the tables and place settings would be strewn about. And, you know, it's like... um. Okay, I would think it was an earthquake that happened, but it was really just to this room. Like, fat chance of that. Meanwhile, she's like, I did all this work and you fucked it up. Thanks. Right? That's where I would be like so mad. Be like, you can do whatever the fuck you want, but don't fuck with my shit. Please. Thank you. Also, please don't follow me home. (laughs) Well, a horny ghost could follow me home. You are a horny ghost. (laughs) So, Tanya McCoy, she's the founder of Oklahoma Paranormal Association She was on an investigation once, and she used the SLS camera that, you know, they have Mm -hmm. the stick figures doing the jigs. Well, the stick figure appeared in a baby stroller that was in the room. And before they had investigated, the couple who were staying in that room said they heard childlike laughter throughout the night. So it really matched up. Now, Tanya's hubby slash paranormal partner, he had an app, and it would allow spirits to converse via text. And when they were in the hallways, it said, get out. And then they continued walking down the hallway and they noticed a big drop in the temperature. And then when they rounded the corner by the elevators, the ghost app said seat. So Tanya pointed the SLS camera over there and there is a stick figure, you know, on the chair in front of the elevator doing its little jiggity jig. Tanya said that she felt a pain on the back of her neck. And she said that was the ghost indicating how they died. She said the spirit on the seat was a man named Charlie, and he was in his mid-20s, and he had worked as a contractor pre-1950s. On legendsofamerica.com, Sam left a comment and said that when they were inside before the renovations took place in like 2004, they witnessed objects being moved around without any explanation and also what sounded like a woman crying and screaming. Another comment was by a woman named Tina, And she said that she saw a woman standing by a window. And she said when she saw the woman the first time, she was in the hall kind of far away. And then the woman ran right up to the window and vanished. And so that's when Tina knew for sure it was a ghost. Like she wasn't sure what was going on. But when the woman vanished, she was like, that's Effie. And kind of like residual energy that way. Like she's doing what she did. So back to the NBA players. Which brings me to Kelsey's story and how this all got started. She said that they traveled to Oklahoma City for work and one of her co-workers knew about Effie's story and she wanted to stay there. And she was like, oh my God, NBA players are being scared. And the co-workers were like, hell no, I don't want to stay there. But they ended up staying there because they could do adjoining rooms. And so they felt safer. And I was like, I mean, 
I get the logic. Kelsey said no one had any experiences, even though she wished she had felt something, saw something, but she was like, maybe it was because we were just a lot of women there and, you know, it might not have been the ghost preferences. But one coworker who didn't go with them was their male boss. And now after he heard the stories, he was like, I want to go back and see if Effie would make a move on me, which also sounds like me. So, okay, NBA players, Tim Hardaway Jr. of the Dallas Mavericks, he wrote an article for the Players' Tribune in 2019 about his experience at the Skirvin Hotel. And he said the first time he had heard about the hotel was when he was a rookie with the Knicks in 2014. They were flying to Oklahoma City, and a bunch of the teammates were saying shit about the hotel and just, you know, things that they've experienced, scary sounds. And Tim was like, oh, they're just trying to scare me because I'm a rookie. They're just doing what teammates do. However, when he entered the hotel, he did get creepy vibes from the start. And something that made me laugh in his article, it's, he said it seemed like it would have paintings that have the eyes that follow you around, like on Scooby-Doo. <laughs> anyway, he said that he got to his room and instantly turned on the TV and had all intentions of leaving it on nonstop. He said he figured if it was haunted, it would turn the TV off and then he would have verification that it's haunted. Or maybe if the TV stayed on, it would scare any ghost away. And he was like, hey, don't judge my methods, okay? That's just how my brain works. Anyway, he woke up and the TV was still on. So he was like, these fucking dudes were just busting my balls. But at breakfast, when he went down there, a lot of the other guys were saying they heard sounds and stuff. But Tim hadn't heard anything. And so he was like, they're just fucking around with me. Like, whatever. They played their game, then went on their merry way. But they did lose that game. Then... When Tim stayed at the Skirvin again, he said that he had a routine where he unpacks everything he's going to use and then goes to get food. Well, when he got back from his meal, he was just, you know, bebopping along into his room and he saw his toothbrush had been moved to the other side of the sink. And he was like, no, I know where I put my toothbrush. Like I have a whole system, but he was like, you know what? I'm not going to think twice about it. Like, sure. Maybe something just happened. But he forgot so much about it, he didn't leave the TV going. And you know, like, that was his safety mm -hmm. plan. He said he heard footsteps outside his room, but he was like, well, like, this is when he was laying down. And he's like, well, people walk up and down hotel rooms all the time. No big deal. But then he heard, like, whispers, soft little whispers. And he jumped out of bed, and he said that around that time, the footsteps sounded like they were running and he turned on all the lights to make sure that no one had snuck in and was fucking with him. He said the footsteps had gotten even louder and they sounded like they were right outside his door. So Tim took a deep breath and opened the door really fast, but there was no one in the hall. And he said, no, I had just heard the loud footsteps. There's no way someone would have been able to disappear that quickly. And that was his experience, but it was enough that he said if his team ever books another room at the Skirman Hotel, he will use his own money and pay for a different room at a different hotel. So obviously the stories his teammates had said now rang true to Tim since he had experienced something himself. But seriously, so many NBA players refused to stay at the Skirvin Hotel anymore. There was a player for the Bulls, I think Taj Gibson. He said that his bathroom door kept slamming shut at night for like no reason. And then in 2010, Eddie Curry of the Knicks 
said that he couldn't sleep from all the phantom noises going on and he ended up staying in his teammate Nate Robinson's room because he was too scared to stay alone in his own room throughout the night. Curry's room was on the 10th floor where they say Effie and a lot of the interactions are said to happen there. Then in 2013, Wesley Johnson of the Phoenix Suns, he said he woke up and his bathroom door was closed. And he was like, I didn't leave it like that, but okay, maybe like the air, whatever. But when he opened it, the bathtub was filled with water. And that's definitely not how he left it. Now, Meta World Peace, he said that he didn't just have weird things happen in the room. They happened to him. He said he felt a hand on his body and then multiple hands all over him, touching him in inappropriate places. Seriously, there's so many stories from NBA players who have had experiences in the Skirvin Hotel and they will sometimes check out in the middle of the night, go to another hotel. And what they do is that they're like, okay, no one needs to book this hotel because it's like the Oklahoma City Thunder is using that hotel as a way to get the visiting teams off their game because a lot of the visiting teams lose. Well, because they're fucking sleepy from dealing with those people schlepping up and down the damn hallway all night. Right? Wow, that took me forever to get out. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I was like, oh, good. <laughs> but it's not just NBA players who the ghost flirt with. The quote-unquote horny ghosts have been known to whisper into the ears of male guests and they would be propositioning them, you know, whispering sweet nothings in their ears. And once a man was in the shower and a naked female appeared in the bathroom and he was like, what the fuck? And then she quickly vanished. Then I was like, okay, is that a story that some husband just told? Like, it was a naked female. She just appeared. Yeah. What was I to do? I was naked gross uh, you know i'm just joking but a lot of it is you know geared toward men so even the horny ghost doesn't want me but whatever um but how we always talk about stuff is so much worse when you know the backstory because at first i was like effie the horny ghost that's just like me ha 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 and then it's like well she might not have even existed but someone did exist and you know that even if that whole story wasn't true, if he was having inappropriate relations with his staff members who were mostly African-American and at a time where segregation was still going on. And so they worked at this very shishi hotel. So like they were already scared that they might lose their job, that people wouldn't want them there, you know, all of this stuff. And then, you know, if he was having all the things with people that he wanted to have, because he was the owner, that even though Effie might not have existed, there were probably several Effies. And so it just is like, God, that's heartbreaking to think about. You know, it's fun to think about a horny ghost and how I always say like, well, I'd love an incubus to come, you know, do all the things. But it's just like, when you think about the backstory, when you know the facts, it's very like just gut-wrenching. She's also not at all what I thought she was going to be. I know. But I think it's funny though, that they always would say like, these NBA players who were, you know, like over six feet tall, over 300 pounds and stuff like they're too scared to sleep at night because something's going bump in the night, you know? Well, size does not equal strength. Oh, I know. And physical strength does not, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yes. All no, we know. But it's just like how everyone's like, no, the NBA players are scared to stay here. Like, you want to go stay here? But I do. I really do want to stay at a haunted hotel. Me too. 
But thank you so much, Kelsey, for this recommendation. And thank you, Erica, for introducing us to Kelsey. And, well, your whole family. We love all of them. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I wanted this to be, like, a really fun story because I thought, oh, yay. And then, again, like I just said, it always is bad when you, th- like, you hear everything. Yeah. But let's just be honest. If I was a ghost, I would be a horny ghost. And you'd probably be there judging me in the corner. I don't judge you. As she says with her eyebrows off. Because I, when have I ever judged any of your sex capades? You do. I do never judge you. The only thing I judge is that you're weird and you have somebody sleep over that you've never met before. <laughs> That's weird as fuck. You literally had that before. Uh-huh. Think back. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but you do it every time and it's really okay. weird. Oh, Lord. Pot meat kettle. But she'll be like, yeah, they're going to come over for the weekend. And I'm like... You've, you literally have talked to them for a week. Like, how do you know y'all are going to mesh? Like, what if you're like, oh, fucking leave? Well, because I talked to these people longer than a week. I talked to him for like two months before he came over for the weekend. But I definitely don't judge any of your actual sex things. You're not really judgy. I'm just joking. Like, but you saw how she got so mad. Like, I do judge you about this. That she literally did. And then she had to think about it. I'm just saying. It's weird. If I'm weird, you're weird. I never said I wasn't. <laughs> oh, gosh. I definitely have noticed that going back watching Sex in the City, though. I feel like Carrie was actually judgy. She was. And I, because I've also caught, well, I think I have, like, the last episode of, um, what's it called now? And that's, and that's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> and just like that. Yeah. It's a weird title. Yeah. And that's and just like that. And she still kind of is. She was my least favorite character. Yeah, I just love Miranda. Miranda's my favorite. Not now. Miranda is not my favorite now. They have made her, if you're not caught up, sorry. But they have made her so, I don't want to say weak, but like questioning herself in a way that she would never have done on the actual show. Yeah. And not even like the sexuality thing. I'm talking about her capabilities as like an attorney, as like a businesswoman, as a professional. Like she would have never done that on the show. Yeah, like. When I watched it the first season, she was so nervous about going to that class yes, or whatever. Yes, and like, like, a, like a fumbling, like, she just, it's just not her. She was top of her class at Harvard. Yeah. This fake lady. <laughs> like, she would not have done that. Yeah. She would have gone, I, Miranda Hobbs. Oh, my God. That's like my least favorite part. <laughs> I, Miranda Hobbs. But, yes, I didn't like Carrie's character because she was judgy and she wrote the sex uh yes the sex column and then like would be like you know what to samantha yeah all right so the story for this episode is one that i was like laying in bed listening to one of my mini murder shows that i watched going to sleep and i was like damn that's a good story so like i googled it real quick and like screenshotted it so i'd have it you know because i was moments away from going to sleep and i I know donna's gonna know this one and it's gonna bug me but (laughs) (laughs) pamela koloff wrote an article for the New York Times that was like a really good breakdown on it. And then I, I mean, of course, obviously I used other things, but that one had such a good breakdown on it. So kudos to old Pammy Pam. Okay, picture it. A neighbor is woken up at about 4.30 in the morning to the sound of Julie Rea pounding on the door. She's standing there. She's got no shoes on. She's just standing in a t-shirt and underwear and she is panicking. And she says that someone has kidnapped her son. Living in the house was just Julie and her 10-year-old son, Joel. 
So Julie told police that she had heard Joel scream. Like she awoke to him screaming and she knew like something is wrong. This is not just like, oh, I have a nightmare. Like, no, something is wrong. She runs into his room and he's not in his bed. But what she does see is a guy in a ski mask and he starts to attack Julie. Now, Julie is a black belt in Taekwondo. So she really fought with this guy and not in the like what you see in a movie where this one gets thrown against the wall and this one get you know yeah it wasn't like that but they were like kind of wrestling a little bit she chases him through the house grabs his legs and he's like dragging her with him and he gets outside and he's like trying to shake her off so he ends up like slamming her head into the ground and then he's able to run away oh my gosh so Julie tells a neighbor, I, I think he kidnapped Joel because I can't, he wasn't in, you know, wasn't in there. Unfortunately, though, when police arrive, they find Joel laying in his bedroom floor and he had been stabbed 12 times. What the fuck? So Julie is so upset by this. And she actually has to be taken to the hospital because she's got a black eye. She's got rug burns all over her from being dragged through the house. She had a wound on her arm that needed some stitches and just some like scratches and and bumps and all on her head, her shoulders, and on the tops of her feet. While Julie's at the hospital, police, of course, are looking at the house, collecting evidence, and they weren't really able to find any signs of forced entry. And they asked Julie, like, did you lock the door? And she's like, I mean, I don't remember specifically going to lock the back door, but, like, I always lock it. So, yeah, it was locked. But the police kind of immediately start thinking something's weird because the murder weapon was a knife from the house. And so, like, why would an intruder not have brought their own weapon with them? With their intent to harm the kid. Right. It's not like they attacked her and then the kid was like you know i hate to say it like this but collateral damage like it it appeared that joel was the target yeah but there were some issues with the investigation like they didn't dust joel's room they didn't dust like the butcher block where the knife came from so there was definitely some fuck-ups for lack of a better word so the police really start looking into julie to see like did she have anything to do with this so of course they take her clothes for evidence and they find her blood all over the clothes because she had injuries but they also found a tiny bit of joel's blood on her clothes but the investigators went so far as to dig up her septic tank and then like of course like looking in all this shower drains and all that to make sure that she hadn't like showered but i'm like okay if you pulled up donna's septic tank right now there would be blood in her septic tank you don't have to tell my dirty secrets. But I mean, like, no, I, I no. mean, I feel like if you've ever had like a cut yeah. ever, a period, whatever, there's going to be fucking blood in your septic yeah. tank. Is that not, is that not a thing? Or does it get? Ooh, God, yeah, it probably does. Let's not talk about how a septic tank works because I do have one. Everybody in the city is like, what the fuck is a septic <laughs> tank? <laughs> it's really gross. So if you don't have city sewage, you literally have an underground tank where when you flush your toilet, take shower, all that, it goes. I don't know about the shower thing, but the, the flushing the toilet for sure. I know it's, yeah, I think it's just toilet. And when it overflows, you are in a world of issues. <laughs> Knock on wood, that has not happened. Why would you even say that? You totally just jinxed yourself. <laughs> Police use luminol and all the stuff to really look and see if there was like blood all over the house and they didn't find anything. 
And But they didn't find any other, like, DNA, any hair on her. No. And the house wasn't in disarray. So, like, how I said, you know, they tussled, but it wasn't, like, this huge fight where... And she was more so, like, he was running and she was tackling him. And he's, like, running and, like, dragging her. So, there wasn't this huge altercation in the house. But police felt like that was a really big red flag that the house wasn't destroyed. I do get that, but... I mean, if you think about she had, like, taekwondo and stuff, that's more, like, hands-on. Yeah. yeah. It's not what you see in, like, I don't know, the equalizer and all of the things that's just, like, like you said, like, Bruce Lee and right. all of that. Now, what they did find out is that Julie was, I don't know, I can't really get a a handle on her. So, she grew up the daughter of missionary parents and at the time, she was working on her PhD, I think in like education psychology or something with education. But she was going through an intense custody battle with her ex-husband, Leonard Kirkpatrick, for custody of Joel. So this was like a huge red flag to police. So there had been a lot of back and forth on who had custody of Joel. But most recently, Leonard had actually been awarded like, full physical custody of Joel. And she was only given, like, visitation every couple of weeks. Which is pretty unheard of, especially in 1997, yeah. for the father to get full custody. Now, she was appealing this, but the most recent appeal before Joel's murder was denied. Now, I heard, uh, there was there's a bunch of different podcasts about this, and um, one said that Leonard had remarried, and so the courts felt like he was able to offer a little more stability because it was like a two-parent household, whereas she was like in school working on her PhD, and that maybe that was why. Um, some stuff said that Leonard and Julie had a pretty toxic relationship. So I, I don't, I don't know. But either way, Leonard had full physical custody. So again, that's a huge red flag for police because they're like, she just lost custody of him, and her last appeal was denied, like, two weeks before this. Yeah. So was this a situation of, if I can't have him, you can't? Or, like, is it, uh, uh, we don't know. But for some, they really felt like Julie didn't show a lot of emotion after Joel died. And then for some, they talk about how when she kept going to school after he died, that, like, she would have to have someone with her and the lights on and that she got... Um, a German shepherd so that she would have like a service dog because she was so terrified. She did have a teaching position with the university and it got to points where she was having severe panic attacks and a lot of anxiety. Apparently the police would just show up to her house, to the workplace unannounced because they really believed that Julie murdered Joel. Now I've heard this a couple of ways. One of them said that the district attorney felt like there wasn't enough evidence to take it to a grand jury to take Julie to trial. So they brought in a like special investigator from the state attorney's prosecutor's office that is the one that actually brought to the grand jury. And Julie was indicted for Joel's murder on the third anniversary of his death. Oh my gosh. So in this time though, she has done her best to move on with her life. She's gotten remarried and everything. And after three years, she gets indicted for his murder. 
yeah, I don't know this story. I and I'm like, did she do it? Did she not do it? Did the husband do it? Did you know? Like, I yeah. don't know. So the prosecutors really used blood splatter evidence in order to prove that Julie killed Joel. And the fact that the murder weapon was found in his bedroom and they said that it looked like it was placed there. Naysayers of blood splatter evidence for the 75th time. It's not super scientific. Basically, anybody could be like, yeah, I'm an expert in this. And there's not a lot of, like, it seems like there's not like a certificate or specialization in which you can get like accredited with this. It's just like kind of a a learned thing. And it actually does have a lot of subjectivity to it. Oh, I thought you really could specialize in that. Here's the problem is that it's really not a science in which you can reproduce. Some of it you can, but overall, like some of the things that are getting introduced in cases isn't. And so when you have people testifying to be like, this is what the physical evidence show or shows. And then it's like this circumstantial case that they, she talked about this, like specifically in that New York Times article. It's like people are like, oh, OK, this is like scientific stuff when there's literally no scientific evidence to prove that that's exactly what happened to make that. So in this case, though, they really looked at the blood stain on her T-shirt. Now, the defense is like, yeah, she got that on her shirt when she's fighting with the intruder. Like, not because she's killing Joel. The intruder was bloody and it got on her. Like, it was such a small amount, you know. But the prosecution had a retired police officer and had been a president of the International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysts. So he actually did a demonstration to show, like, the different types of blood spatter, how it's created. So wait, they're saying, hey, that's not scientific enough, but I'm going to show you how it actually was? No, that, I'm just talking about how some people view it. Okay. Like, that part didn't come up in trial. I'm just giving you a little, little, you know, that was just a little extra 411 for okay. you. Okay, okay. So he said that he felt like it was very staged and manipulated, and that the crime scene was not consistent with her story of a struggle. And then they had another expert that was like, look, she would not have gotten that blood transferred from another person. It had to have come from her moving the weapon around. But the defense had their own expert that said, actually, no, that it was a transfer from someone else because the blood was resting on top of the fibers, whereas if it had been from a cast off of a weapon it would have penetrated the fibers whereas this was like it just was like rubbed on the top so like I think of it like it wasn't as wet almost I don't know if that's accurate to say but like that's just how I pictured it. it's like oh let me wipe something off versus like let me pour something in it you know I have no idea if that's accurate that's just how my brain processed that so the jurors were like having to decide which expert do they believe but then Julie's ex-husband testified against her And he told that, you know, they were having all this custody issues. And he said that in the past, there had been issues with domestic violence and she was the perpetrator. But then he said that when she got pregnant, when she was 17 with Joel, that she considered having an abortion. There's no way in hell that should have ever been allowed as evidence. Right. 
ever. That is so prejudicial to her. That's like, you know what it reminds me of? That case that I can't remember if we did or if we did on the episode or we watched something on it where they said that he had like a guy had killed a dog in the past. And it was like, it literally had nothing to do with the story. And it was so prejudicial because people hear you hurt an animal and they're like immediately going to find you guilty. Even if they, even if you didn't do it, you know, but it's like, okay, first of all, that was 10 years ago. And I think that she even had her OBGYN to come in and be like, no, she was never considering an abortion. But even if she was, so she weighed her options at fucking 17 years old? Right. How fucking dare you? Yeah. But also, yeah, like, the ex-husband's not going to cast her in a good light on any way, like, any shape or form. Yes. I just, I cannot believe that a judge allowed that in. Right. So, because she considered her options when she was 17... She waited 10 fucking years after all that fight for custody to be like, you know what? Today's the day. That's fucking not what happened. Right. Even if she did murder him, it had nothing to do with the fact that she considered abortion at 17. Right. That just like, like my jaw hit the floor whenever I heard, I'm surprised you were not like, and I squirt. <laughs> and then they, they had people on both sides. Like I said earlier, some people were like, she's been pretty cold and not really emotional after Joel's death. And then they had some people that were like, you know, she was a great mom and she would never have hurt Joel. So it gets sent off to the jury to decide. And after five hours of deliberation, they found Julie guilty. After five hours? Yeah. And she was sentenced to 65 years in prison. Fuck. But that's not where the story ends. So not long, like weeks after Julie was sentenced, Somehow, this story got enough that there was a 2020 episode about it. And there was a lady named Diane Fanning, who is an author, like a true crime author. Yeah. Who was watching that 2020 episode. And so, at this time, she was working on a book about a serial killer named Tommy Lynn Sells. Oh. And she was like, fuck, this really sounds like his M.O. Because he was in prison for murdering children kidnapping all that like he i think he was convicted of two but like had connections of like up to 50 so tommy lynn sells nickname was the cross-country killer this is going to sound terrible but picture him like murdering children in the same way that israel keys murdered people like he basically just was working his way back and forth across the country like hitchhiking doing all the things working at carnivals all of that and killing children across the country. What the fuck? So at this time, Tommy Lynn Sales is on death row in Texas for murder. That he's confessed to like 22 murders. Some people say that there's 50, 70. You know how these numbers get bigger and bigger and bigger. So Diane is working with him, writing this book, and she reaches out to him to be like, know anything kind of thing. She doesn't tell him details. But he writes back and he's like, did this murder happen two days before I murdered that person in uh, Springfield, Missouri? So we know that on October 15th, two days after Joel's murder, um, Tommy Lynn Sells abducted and killed a 13-year-old Stephanie Mahaney. And he was actually indicted for that murder because he had details that only he would know. So she ends up releasing a book, Diane Fanning, and it's called... 
through the window. And she talks a lot about his confessions. So this is all like coming out that maybe the serial killer actually killed Joel and not Julie. Yeah. Now this timeline right here is a little fuzzy to me because I heard a couple of different things. But at some point, the Innocence Project like gets involved. And they find witnesses that say that they saw Tommy Sells like in the area the weekend Joel was killed. And other people said like, yeah, he bought a bus ticket. And, and basically, they say that the media coverage from this made them start looking back at her case. Now, remember how I told you that she had remarried? Yeah. Okay. So one of the deputies that were first ones on the scene had said nothing about seeing or not seeing footprints in the backyard. Like, didn't make mention that he even went to look in the backyard for footprints. Yeah. And at trial, he said that before he went to the house, he had actually shined his light and looked through the grass, and it was, like, really wet and dew-covered, and that there was no evidence that of, like, a footprint of somebody running away as she's, like, dragging him, chasing him, right? Yeah. So... What Julie's new husband, Mark Harper, did, he contacted a meteorologist. And they were like, actually, there would not have been any dew on the ground that morning. Because, like, how the rain was, like, there would not have been dew on the ground for him to have seen with his flashlight. Oh, shit. So, it's like, there was nothing in his, like, logs that he saw that and then all of a sudden in the trial he's like yeah there were no footprints but it's like no actually there could not have been footprints in the dew because there would not have even been any dew right but people were still very skeptical though because like some people said that she changed her story up like there was a mask but then it was a hood and there was just some some details that were kind of fuzzy that it's like you could explain away with like her adrenaline pumping yeah. and then you know but some of it's like or she's just not telling the truth and so some of it's not lining up you know and then like some of like the height discrepancies with what tommy sells looks like versus what she said and then like she made it sound like he was kind of young but really he was older than she said but also it's like it's dark and, and if he had a mask or a hood on yeah and also you're put, like potentially fighting for your and your child's life so like you know i can see how i mean eyewitness testimony is bullshit you know we know yeah. that you you stand in front of me and Donna, we're going to remember two different things about you. So, I mean, some of that I take with a grain of salt. And some of them I'm like, oh, well, I can see how that could be kind of, you know, reasonable doubt. And some of it I'm like, well, you know, this is like an episode of fucking 48 Hours. I'm like, half the story I'm like, she did it. Half the story I'm like, she didn't do it. You right, know? yeah. Well, because, you know, sometimes you're like, that's wild enough. That can't be a lie. But then other times you're like, no, that's too wild to be the truth. Like, there's just no in-between, really. Well, on June 24th of 2004, the court actually vacated her conviction and ordered her immediate release. So some stuff I saw made it sound like, oh, it was because of all the stuff with Tommy Sells. One of the podcasts I was listening to, Not Your Normal Murder, said that actually that the special prosecutor that they had brought in didn't actually have the ability to like bring the charges or something what the fuck? so I'm, I'm not really sure what the exact reason was but basically like as soon as she got out they rearrested her so 
people came together and raised like $75,000 so that they could get her released on bond. So it went back to trial again in 2006. And the prosecutors were like, I mean, we really think we're right on this blood splatter pattern and all of that. And the analyst that had taken the stand before kind of changed his testimony, but like to make it worse for Julie, like all of a sudden he was like, yeah, that stain on her shirt, that was from Joel's hand because he was trying to push her away. So we went from like this little smear Mm -hmm. to now it's his hand. And when they cross-examined him, they were like, so you got the measurements from Joel's hand and compared them? And he was like, well, no. Yeah. So, like, how you know that was his hand? And, like, was it in a hand print? No, it was, like, a smear. Like, yeah. I'm picturing, like, like how it was described was, like, a two-inch smear. Yeah. Like, you would see the, yes. the line. Yes. It was not, like, like his testimony was, like, it made it sound like it was, like, a hand print, and it, it wasn't. Yeah. Just for that visualization of a child, like, trying to protect himself. Yes, exactly. Now, in the first trial, too, she did not take the stand in her defense. And the defense came really hard for this analysis, this blood analysis, and was like, look, there's literally no scientific basis for such a claim. Because people on the jury think that they're hearing science. And they're like, oh, yes, okay, I get what you're saying. And it's like, no, they literally cannot replicate this. They cannot, I mean, this is not what you're claiming as science. Like, I mean, they were saying, like, Basically, anybody could be like, I'm a blood splatter expert. The defense also really fought that they said that Julie's injuries were self-inflicted. Like, the girl had rug burns on her knees. Like, I mean, like, her rug, her injuries were like, I feel like on that part of her body that would have been consistent with her being dragged. as she's like holding on to him, trying to keep him from running. Yeah. And they come for, you know, all the the investigation kind of mishaps where they didn't look for stuff. And they did play audio of cells the con- the serial killer confessing. Now, some people say, okay, he's confessing to all these crimes because he's wanting to prolong his death penalty. And maybe so, but if he's offering details that are very consistent and match up with timelines and you can prove that he's somewhere and, you know, all of this, like, we, we need to take this seriously. But this time, Julie did take the stand. And she was like, I had absolutely nothing to do with this and this time when the jury convened I think they took like 12 hours to deliberate and they found her not guilty on July 26 2006 oh good and that first time five hours that's it I know it was like they knew I'm telling you I really feel like that abortion testimony Mm -hmm. did her in yeah but Tommy Lynn Sells was actually um executed on July 3rd, 2014, and he was never convicted of anything that had anything to do with Joel, and a lot of people didn't bring charges against him against a lot of this stuff because, again, he was already on death row for some murders. Uh, I think it was two murders of two teens, but of course, there's like tons of stuff you can listen to on him, and I mean, he was really brutal. Anyone who goes after kids, it's... Yes. Ugh. You know, and you just think like, okay, yay, Julie's out. Like, people know she didn't do this. She was found not guilty. But prosecutors were like, yeah, remember, they acquitted her. They didn't say she was innocent. And like, they were digging their heels in that 
she did this still. After Julie was released and all this was over, she had a really hard time acclimating back to life. She had a lot of PTSD from not only her son's death and the emotional trauma of all that, her emotional trauma of being in prison and being convicted and physical trauma, all the things. And she's like, look, I mean, in prison, I was the person who committed like the unforgivable sin. Like this was, you know, so you know she didn't have an easy time. Yeah. She's like continued to have a really hard time because some people really still feel like she did this. And, but she did eventually get a certificate of innocence and is like officially on the list of exonerated people from the state of Illinois. And even with that, she's still struggling. Her husband, who was such a supporter for her and really fought for her, they ended up getting divorced. Gosh. And she's had a really hard time finding a job because like, as soon as she gets interviewed, she's like, by the way, this is what happened because it's going to come out and it's going to, you know, so she tries to be upfront about it. She ended up having to move back to Tennessee to live with her parents because she just was having such a hard time. I don't know if this was something like an option for her, but it makes me so mad that people who like brutally murdered someone, like the guy on the bus and he got a new identity, you know, and like he was guilty. He was found guilty. Right. And she's having to live with all of this and no, no help. And I, and I never saw anything where she got any compensation for her time in prison. I mean, even if she did, I mean, she wasn't in there 40 years. You know, she was in there like 10 or so. I can't yeah. remember exact, the math. I just lost the math. But, you know, even if she did get something, it wouldn't be enough to sustain her for the rest of her life. Right. She just really struggled. The last thing I saw was like from like 2018 and she didn't have a job and she was really struggling. And it just breaks my heart that she lost everything. And it's like, I I don't know for sure if Tommy Lynn Sells did it. I don't know for sure that she did or didn't do it. But, I mean, she was acquitted. Like, she can't keep being punished for something that her peers found her not guilty of. Yeah. I really want to know more about her wounds. Because if she had, like, had, like, bumps and all of that on her head, I feel like if it wasn't from someone else, she would have had to do that with some kind of object hitting her head on the wall or something like there would be evidence of self-harm that way because she had so many different kinds of wounds and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, and like, I think it says a lot that like the Innocence Project was involved and all that because they don't just get involved in any case, you know? So I don't know, but I mean, I just like, and what if that author had not been watching, you know, what if... It, it's just there's just so many moving parts of like what if this happened and what if that had you know ultimately julie's like i wish i'd have woken up sooner you know and one of julie's friends that testified said that they had been hanging out that night like her julie her friend and joel watching movies doing all the things and she asked her friend to spend the night like she's like why don't you just spend the night and her friend was like no no no, no. and it's like why would she if she had planned to kill joel like why would she have asked the friend to spend the night yeah you know and it's like why, like, why then? Why, you know, it's just like, it just, it didn't make any sense if she did it. Like, what's the motive? And if the motive is the custody thing, again, why that night? Why not right after it? And then if you're going to bring in this whole abortion thing, if she didn't want him, why wouldn't she just give you cu- fucking custody? Right. And I mean, I know there's more that could go into that, like, 
you know, it's out of spite, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. like, I just – she seemed to be a really good mom. Even if there were issues in her relationship with her ex-husband where maybe there was domestic violence stuff, I'm not – I don't know. But she ultimately seemed like a really good mom. Yeah. I don't know. But I, I feel like the fact that the Innocence Project was involved – and the fact that she did get, like, a certificate of innocence and, like, she is on the list of people who have officially been exonerated. Yeah. That's different than her just getting an acquittal to me. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, you have to let her move on. Like, this is not – that's not fair. Yeah. Like, she's free, but she's not free. No, she's – and I, I cannot imagine the daily mental health struggles that she goes through with PTSD and, and just everything. Yeah. The loss of everything. Like, everything. Yeah. But ultimately, Joel lost his life, a 10-year-old little boy, and, you know, things just got so, like, wrapped up in the trial. Like, they focused almost like on numerology, like they would say, which I saw a couple of different things, that Joel was stabbed 12, 13, 14 times, but they tried to, like, really hone in on the number 13 in the trial and be like, that's her favorite number. Joel was stabbed 13 times. And um, there was something else. There was like a couple of other things that were like, oh, this was on the 13th. Or, you know, yeah. there was just like a bunch of things that they tried to do like, and that's her favorite number. And it's right. like, you're stretching, you know. Well, and I think sometimes that kind of stuff does come into play. But you would see it in that person's life, too, that they were so like focused right. on different things like that. It would just be like, oh, yep. It's her favorite number. Yeah. But again, ultimately, Joel lost his life and no one is paying for his murder. And Julie just, I think, still continues to beat herself up because, you know, she talks about how she wished she would have woken up sooner and that maybe she could have saved her son. That's so sad. This is one of those nights where I wish you would have gone last. <laughs> right? I know. I'm like, well, damn, my story sounds better than yours. Like, yours is so, you know, I hate when kids are hurt killed yes. all of that but then yeah it's just it seems so unfair to her but i understand because it's such an unbelievable story right when you hear that well it's just that again no one is being held accountable and like prosecutors are like yeah we're not looking at anybody else because they still think it's her you know yeah. so it's like they're not reopening the case and doing anything because they're like they feel like justice can't be served because she was acquitted yeah but y'all let us know what y'all think. Do you really think that Julie did it? Or do you think that Tommy Sells did it? Or do you think it was something entirely different? And do you want to be haunted by Donna's freaky deaky ghost? Thank y'all so much for listening and supporting us. Don't forget to like, review all the things. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.